Welcome to MuggleCast episode 426. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. Uh, Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we're going to get started with our series of Sorcerer's Stone discussions. Like we've said, we never completed the final chapter of Sorcerer's Stone in our chapter-by-chapter series. So we are going to do that in a few weeks. But first, we're going to reflect on Sorcerer's Stone. So we'll get started with that today. We also have some feedback regarding our dark mark discussion we got a lot of feedback there (laughs) our social media manager jewel must be very happy because we got a lot of hashtag engagement on those posts (laughs) boost those numbers but first a couple of news items let's talk about harry potter wizards unite again micah on last week's episode you made a couple of requests about things uh features you'd like to see added to the game one of the things you had mentioned was you would like to see spell energy right on the map, right? I think that was actually Laura who said that. Yeah, that's correct. Laura? Okay, now I have I to I know change. we sound alike. <laughs> I know. I have that deep, bassy baritone. Just... All right. So well, easy to confuse us. A great suggestion by Laura. And I see as I'm looking at the game right now as we record that they did, in fact, go through with that. One thing that I had recommended, and I'm not sure if this was done as well, is not cheapening the player by if you run out of spells when you're in the midst of a battle that you're pretty much S out of luck and you would have- They haven't fixed that. Yeah, they need to fix that. Or they, they shouldn't allow you to go into battle with a minimum number of spells. Like If you only have five, let's say, mm-hmm. they should say- you need more energy in order to be able to battle. Well, I'm just really impressed that they listened to MuggleCast and then added the spell energy on the heads-up display the day after we made that request. So thank you, Niantic, for listening to the show. And by the way, Comic-Con was over the weekend, San Diego Comic-Con, and there was a Wizards Unite panel, and they announced that they are, quote, imminently implementing background mode, so it will track your steps without the app open, so you could in theory, open port keys a lot faster. And there will also be regional dragons. So it's going to get all Game of Thrones up in Wizards Unite. Oh, man. That'll be pretty cool. We're not talking about baby dragons. We're talking about like large dragons and they fly. They shared a couple of previews at Comic-Con. They looked pretty cool. I hope I have enough spell energy to get rid of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that it's going to start counting our steps without the app open because if you look at my step count in Wizards Unite, it looks like I don't move, which is not inaccurate, but it's also not totally accurate. (laughs) I do walk a little more than like 0.2 miles a day. And like right now the app is like, yeah, you've only walked 0.2 miles. And I'm like, okay, that that's fake news. (laughs) Well, you've told us you really only open it up when you're like at your desk, not really when you're walking around. Mm -hmm. So that explains that. Yeah. And by the way, they so they're having a their first event in Indianapolis over Labor Day weekend, and they announced some more details over the weekend. You have to pay 30 bucks to get into this thing. (laughs) And not just that, you have to enter in into a raffle for the pleasure of buying one of these tickets so i entered the raffle i want to go to this but who knows if i'm actually going to be able to go because there's a drawing just to be able to buy tickets it's very that reminds me of how star wars celebration was this year 
raffles to get the privilege of standing in line to pay money for the yeah stuff. So right, that's just how they got to do it with the demand being so high. Uh, yeah, I guess there's enough demand what? for that. Really, in Indianapolis, right? Yeah, and in a park, you like know, you know, Indianapolis has like <laughs> one million people in it, right? Like it's. Just- and you can only so it's a two day event, but you can only attend one of the days. Mm. So, but this is I, in conjunction with Indie Popcon, I guess so. And there's going to be like exclusives you can capture. You'll be able, you'll be like the first to be able to capture these things. So I want to go because I'm only three hours from it, Eric. I know you said you might have work, so you might not be able to go. But yeah, I think it'd be cool. It, it's not Indie PopCon, but it's another one of the Comic-Cons that happens in Indianapolis that is going on that same weekend. Interesting. But mm-hmm. it sounds a little bit like Wizarding World Gold to me. A little bit. Very elitist. A li- li- little bit, yeah. Because, you know, you have to pay to enter a park. It's like, eh. Um, there has been a special event going on at Wizards Unite, and there's been a lot of additional confoundables, or sorry, foundables to catch, like Harry and the Dementor and... I've seen a bunch of new things popping up. It's been fun lately. I leveled up to uh, level 15 on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. That's how I spend my Saturday nights. <laughs> Andrew, you going out? No, I'm going to level up in Wizards Unite. By the way, a couple of weeks ago, we asked on Instagram, are you following the story in the game? And 40% said yes, 60% said no. So, Meanwhile, Micah just posts funny things that uh, the, the characters say in dialogue into our internal Slack group. And that's how he plays the game. Yeah. Yeah, one of the characters decided that they were no longer going to pursue the career of mazoologists because they came across moon calves mating with each other. <laughs> Once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> moon calves are pretty cute. I wouldn't want to watch them mating, but that wouldn't turn me off from studying mazoology. Well, this is the kind of story that you get, though, in Wizards Unite, just for people maybe who have oh, not downloaded on. the game yet. It's very, <laughs> it's very. Very interesting. <laughs> I just so I clicked just the button straight through. through those stories. I'm part of that no, even though I didn't vote. Yeah, I think we all are. Not None of us me. Are I'm watching the story intently. Mm. Eric, why, why does it, instead of the Harry Ginny fan fiction, why don't you rewrite the story for Wizards Unite? I mean, they, they can really use some help. I, I, you know, I, I disagree. I think they got a good team and they're doing great stuff. Oh. Eric, you're only, what, level five? This yeah. is why you're still following the story. You haven't been burnt out on it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> or you're spending all your time reading the story instead of actually playing. <laughs> exactly. It is so captivating, you guys. No, no, no. Level five, the, the extent of the story that he's had is just Harry has said hello to him. And so that's why he thinks it's a great story. <laughs> oh, this is great. Adult Harry Potter is talking to me. <laughs> and Constance. Yes. Constance Pickering. That's her name, right? I can never remember her name on the show. I don't know. Tap, 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 tap. That's all I do. (laughs) Yeah, I just tapped through a whole dialogue with Harry and Hermione. I was like, don't care. (laughs) Because he's like, Hermione, I keep hearing that a lot of the foundables are things to do with me. And I'm like, okay, Harry, whatever. I don't care. Your time has passed, Harry. Just let it go. (laughs) Whoa. It's 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 fantastic beast time. I, I am enjoying the game, though. I, oh, I really, it's, it's fun to see all same the here. different things to collect. Yeah, same. Before we get to MuggleCast TBT, we have another throwback announcement. Right, Eric? That's right. It's been five years, but the Harry Potter Crazy Caption Contest over at MuggleNet is live once more. And this is a segment that goes all the way back to 2002. 
there have been 397 weeks of this thing that I have run over on MuggleNet. But this year, July in particular, is the 20th anniversary of MuggleNet. And partly to celebrate, we brought the caption contest back. I had to go through all the old pages, code them and fix them. There's new updated HD graphics, because now we have Blu-rays for the images. And (laughs) you can enter... There's now new weeks. There's going to be new weeks at the caption contest. We're using Fantastic Beasts. We're using, like I said, the Blu-rays. And the caption contest is back. I have to get the word out because nobody goes to websites anymore in general. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Nobody goes to websites anymore at all. It's all social media based. But the caption contest is very old school in this way. You go to the main MuggleNet page. Click on the right in the upper right. Fans and fun. First thing on the list, caption contest. And that's where you can submit. Your entry. MuggleNet turns 20 years old this year, don't they? It's true. Wow. Maybe you could have spoken to Niantic about putting the caption contest in Wizards Unite. Ooh. It would have gotten a lot of eyeballs on it that way. <laughs> I don't know. People tend to kind of click through that thing. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so thanks, everybody, in advance for viewing. There's new entries every week, you know, new contests every week. I plan to run it, you know, indefinitely. Get another couple of years. We'll see. Indefinitely another couple of years. Well, Eric, let's keep the spotlight on you because this week's MuggleCast TBT is a prediction you made. This is from episode 340, October 9th, 2017. So this was in between Fantastic Beast 1 and Fantastic Beast 2. The film's announced setting of being in Paris um, and Nicolas Flamel is a Frenchman. Um, mm-hmm. that it, we may, it may just be that we are on the turf of this guy who is prominent. And he's certainly, we know this, if nothing else, he is an ally of Dumbledore's. So it might be that, um, Dumbledore has a mission for Newt. This is just speculation here. Has a mission for Newt, uh, having to do with France, or maybe they're tracking Grindelwald to France. And Dumbledore tells Queenie and Tina and Newt to hang out and sort of have like a safe house uh, with his buddy Nicholas, who he, you know, worked in on <laughs> oh, with Alchemy. He's like the Aberforth of the yeah. movies. Got a yeah. safe house somewhere. Like, uh, like just a safe house. The film. Oh, well, you got that. Ri- you got that right, Eric. Exactly <laughs> right. Wow. Uh, safe house. It's my turn to do a mica gloat, I guess. Uh, I'll say, <laughs> you know, guys, it's been 15 years we've done this show for, and I just can't believe how right I was time and time ago. Exactly, exactly, exactly. No, I, I think that, um, you know, if I could think about what was going through my head back at that moment in 2017, it's really just that Nicholas Fumel is 600 years old. And so I thought somebody with that much age uh, and, and wisdom behind them accrued would put down roots and and would have like I, I pictured really an extensive network of contacts throughout the years, and definitely real estate because that's the one thing that that never depreciates, right? Uh, mm. So I, I kind of just thought of it from an aspect of what would what would Nicholas Flamel be actively doing? And I thought, well, he'd have you know really a base of operations that, to my mind, would be pretty cool. Yeah. This sounds very much like my Dumbledore explanation. <laughs> like it was a natural <laughs> guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's He's old enough, he fits the timeline, he's notable, but I really like the fact that you use the word safe house because that's exactly what ends up getting used in the film. Yeah. Mm. Well, 
Maybe J.K. Rowling was listening and said, oh, good point, Eric. I will include that in my script. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Time for some feedback now. Need to issue a correction. On last week's episode, we were discussing if Voldemort may have told Grindelwald that Dumbledore was dead and how Grindelwald would have reacted to that. We were wrong about the information that was relayed. When Voldemort went to Grindelwald, he did not get any information out of Grindelwald. And so he killed Grindelwald right there. So then that was a movieism. So thank you to yeah, what was a movieism? I think, well, I talked about a moment that I thought I recalled where Grindelwald told Voldemort where to find the Elder Wand. Mm. And now in retrospect, I'm like, that was almost definitely a movieism. Yeah, because I, I do mm. believe you're right. I do believe it's in the movie. Mm-hmm. It definitely is in the movie. Yeah, it's it's towards the end of Deathly Hallows Part 1. And yeah. I guess what this shows, at least in the book, is Grindelwald is loyal yeah. to Dumbledore. Mm-hmm, true. A very Hufflepuff. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think he would be a Hufflepuff if uh, he went to Hogwarts? You no, know, I'm thinking against it, given the uh, other bad things that he did in his life. I mean, we cannot stain Hufflepuff House any further. I mean, Hepzibah Smith wasn't exactly a great representative of Hufflepuff House, so... Uh, well. <laughs> so, thanks to Yami for pointing that out on Twitter, who said, Time for a Deathly Hallows reread? Yeah, maybe. Uh. Another big discussion last week was regarding the dark mark. We received a lot of feedback, like I said. Our social media engagement numbers were up, thanks to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I assume they were anyway. So, since we were all poo-pooing the idea of a Dark Mark tattoo, this feedback uh, focuses on the the people who are in support of getting one. Katie said, do people have a problem with Darth Darth Vader, clone, and Death Star tattoos? What about the Eye of Sauron from uh, Lord of the Rings? These fictional groups committed genocide too. There is a big difference between real and imaginary. They have become catchy symbols for the franchise in pop culture. Yeah, that's true. And that's sort of because we talked last week a little bit how um, the dark mark is sort of like a very catchy um, franchise symbol to have on like products like backpacks and shoes and what have you. Um, I do wonder though. If timing has something to do with some of the reactions we got about Dark Marks, because all of these fandoms that Katie talks about are, you know, much older than the Potter fandom. And the Potter fandom came about at a time of great social turmoil and change. Not to say that that wasn't happening when these like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars were happening, but I think people have really short memories and it's easier to grasp onto what's going on right now than it is to compare maybe like older fandoms that were established at a different time. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm rambling. No, you're not. Um, but let, let's get some other feedback in here. This is from Corey Ann. I think the discussion following the voicemail was very interesting, but some things about it just rubbed me the wrong way. As someone who has a number of tattoos, I don't think there necessarily needs to be a reason to get a tattoo of something you like or think is cool. And it definitely doesn't feel good to be attacked for a piece of artwork you've put a lot of thought into before putting it on your body, Mugglecasters. Come on. 
I'm a Hufflepuff through and through, and when contemplating what I would like to include in a potential future Potter-themed sleeve, I've considered the Dark Mark partly because I simply like the way it looks artistically. I also believe that the Death Eaters are a good representation of how easy it is to give in to the darkness within yourself, and as someone who suffers from depression for me, I would ultimately be using it as a reminder to fight against the darkness that threatens to take over sometimes. Corianne continues, yes, the dark mark has negative connotations, but I also think we should be able to separate fiction from reality. People get tattoos of Freddy Krueger and other famous villains because they are fans of a franchise or they think it looks cool. I just don't think it automatically means you support or agree with the actions of such characters just because you wear their likeness. I've seen some stories online of people who have gotten dark mark tattoos after overcoming a trial in their life as a symbol to represent turning their backs on their evil just as Snape did to his. I think many of us would agree that Potter fans are generally very open-minded and accepting people. I know a lot of people I've met online are are so. Assuming that everyone who gets the dark mark is on board with wizard Nazis seems unfair and a little absurd. So I thought she brought up some really good points yeah, there. Definitely. Context is king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, regarding the Deathly Hollows tattoos, because we did touch on those. Micah, would you like to read this email from Leah? So Leah says, I just finished listening to your most recent episode and had a couple thoughts about the tattoo discussion. I completely agree that dark mark tattoos are not okay because, as Laura said, there isn't any nuanced way to interpret it. However, I think for other symbols, there is. I myself have the Deathly Hallows symbol tattooed on my ribs and actually serves as the second A in always. To me, the Deathly Hallows are a recognizable symbol from the book series that I associate much more with the seventh book in general. After all, it is called the Deathly Hallows. The book, and thus the symbol, is about struggle and doing the right thing, even when it seems impossible, remaining strong and ultimately triumphing over the obstacles in your way. Personally, I feel that it's a positive and acceptable interpretation of the symbol, and it means a lot to me because of Harry Potter, but also because of my mental health problems and the work that I have to do to remain strong, keep pushing through, and triumph over them. Only in Dumbledore and Grindelwald's interpretation of the Deathly Hallows and what they could do with them does the symbol take on something more sinister. If we wanted to, we could question the, quote, always part of my tattoo that I've seen many other people have as well, since, after all, it represents Snape's obsessive and not entirely healthy love of Lily. But again, I think there's room to interpret it, and for me, it's a larger symbol about the impact and staying power of something really important to someone. Harry Potter for me, Lily for Snape. Hope this adds a little bit more to the tattoo discussion for you all. Love the show. Yeah, those are excellent points as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it does illustrate the fact that, you know, perhaps before judging somebody for a tattoo, you could engage them in a conversation about the tattoo, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to automatically making assumptions about what they believe, unless it's a swastika, (laughs) in which case there's like zero nuance there. (laughs) I know we had brought that up as like a comparison point. um, And and that's where we sort of like have to be able to separate fiction from reality. Yeah, I don't think we're going to change anyone's opinions one way or the other on this discussion. Everybody has their stances. And that's completely fair. Mm -hmm. And I think we've aired both uh, angles now. So we will all live on. And continue to encounter dark mark tattoos and Deathly Hallows right. tattoos. And we won't judge you for that. Yeah. Yeah. This has certainly opened my mind up more, reading people's explanations. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and thank you for everybody's honesty. We really appreciate that as well. All right. On to our main discussion for this week's episode, the beginning of Harry Potter. 
And this will lead up to our discussion of the final chapter in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone as part of our chapter by chapter series. We're going to talk today about, um, you know, how we all got started with Harry Potter, how publishers discovered Harry Potter, the title, (laughs) the Sorcerer's Stone (laughs) versus Philosopher's Stone, uh, moments that stuck out to us, just a wide ranging discussion on Sorcerer's Stone. Um, And this book, Eric, really launched a generation of readers. I know this is one thing that really, you know, Harry Potter has been widely credited for, right? Absolutely. And and I'm I'm one of them. You know, there were not uh, many books as a kid that I picked up. I I could certainly uh, read. I, I got good kind of um, results on those like reading comprehension scores and things in like elementary school. But I was not a, a reader for, for passion really until until finding Harry Potter. And even to this day, there aren't other book series that I love or go back to as much as I, there were some come close, but not as much as Harry Potter. What about for you guys? Oh, Harry, Harry Potter has absolutely been like the constant in my life in terms of literature that I go back to. Yeah. And we'll, we'll discuss how each of us discovered the first book in a little bit, but for me, it was in fourth grade. And before that, I can't remember, obviously, I was very young, so I don't remember much from then anyway, but I was never enthralled with a book um, before Harry Potter as much as I was with Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout uh, our main discussion on this episode, just how Harry Harry is special uh, as a series, and, and there's something in it for everybody, really just, you know, in addition to launching a whole generation of readers it really spanned uh, the gamut of age ranges as well. Like if you, if you remember the UK had adult editions of Harry Potter books published with different covers so that adults could covertly read these books on like public transit and not be ashamed for reading a kid's book. Um, This is, this is the phenomenon that really is Harry Potter. And when we look back, there is a link here, and it is the first note, uh, a first subnote in this document about how the internet also played a role in making this series that we know and love into the behemoth, uh, you know, multi-million dollar global best-selling franchise that it is. And and I think that's true. It was a perfect confluence of events, really. The birth of the internet and discussion forums and things that had existed previously through like letter writing campaigns and fan magazines now could happen instantaneously online. And I really think that that helped build uh, the viewers and really connect a lot of the audience that Harry Potter had to each other and really helped grow. There's no question that the internet was sort of the fabric that connected this entire community together. There, There's no series that I think you could compare it to that grew with the rise of the internet the way that Potter did. It was just kind of a perfect storm of things coming together at one time. And as new technology evolved, so did the ways that people were communicating and talking about this series. I know for me, I got into the series a little bit later on than most people. I was in college when I read the series. I know all of you were middle school yeah. or high school or maybe even younger than that when you first <laughs> picked up the book. <laughs> yeah, you said fourth grade. But when you first picked up the book, I didn't first pick up the books until all of the first five had been released and the sixth was coming out that summer. 
And one of the things I wanted to touch on, Eric, that you mentioned, it being a children's series, I, I feel like that's such a mislabeling of the Potter series, because as we're sitting here now, most of us in our 30s as adults, we're discussing the series, we're discussing the themes and, and other things that we can talk about as adults that we probably couldn't have talked about when we started the podcast 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. At the same time, I support the categorization, especially in the early years of Harry Potter as a children's book. I think whoever was behind that decision, I, I don't begrudge them that because even though there are, you know, these adult themes that we talk about for years and years, that's kind of the same thing. Like that's what should be in a children's book. And the best thing you could do, I think, for children while raising them, although I'm not a licensed teacher or professional, is to treat children like adults. And that's kind of what we see a lot of these professors in Harry Potter treat Harry, Ron, Hermione as as if they were their own people. And I think that's a good lesson that happens in the books and allows, you know, if you're a child reader, I always liked that, you know, really that Dumbledore could level with Harry in the books. And that made me feel like my opinions and thoughts and feelings mattered. Something else that I think is special, um, and it's an experience that Andrew and I both had, is growing up with Harry so it's like, not only are there very adult themes in the books, but the books do become more adult as Harry grows up. Yeah. And like, book seven came out the year that Andrew and I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. So it very much felt like, as I was reading these books, he was going through a lot of the same like, thoughts and emotions that I was going through as a teenager, you know, <laughs> even though I wasn't fighting a dark lord. Um, when you take that yeah. part out of it, <laughs> I could identify with a lot of what was going the on. The dancing, you can identify with the dancing pretty much. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. your, your dark lord was college admission program. Yes. <laughs> Avada Kedavra, Harvard. <laughs> you don't want me? Fine. Um, well, it sounds like we should go around the table and share our first encounters with the Harry Potter book now because it keeps getting brought up. Mm. But just for a little context, The Philosopher's Stone was published in the UK, July 1997. It didn't come and, and it found immediate success. It didn't come to the US um, until October 1998. And funnily enough, there is no exact publication date in the US. And the publisher, Arthur Levine, was actually asked about this a few years ago. And he said, um, quote, I'm fairly certain we didn't have strict on sale dates back then. The publication day would simply be the first of the month listed. And it was listed for October 1998. So that's considered when it was published in the US. Um, and again, it uh, had a lot of success in the US, just like it did in the UK immediately. I discovered it in fourth grade. Um, my fourth grade teacher actually read it to the entire class. I guess it was like our daily reading for the day and i it's funny some things just stick with you some visuals stick with you i still remember sitting on the floor watching my teacher read this book to me maybe it i still remember it because i was so enthralled with the book i was maybe looking forward to it every day she read it to us but um it's just crazy how i still have that visual because it's one of the few things i actually remember from elementary school and <laughs> my mom has actually been in touch with my fourth grade teacher over the years. And and uh, my fourth grade teacher actually knows very well all the success I've had with Harry Potter because of MuggleNet and MuggleCast, <laughs> thanks to her, which is kind of nice that she's been able to track that. 
It's so funny that you talk about the teacher reading experience because that wasn't how I first came into contact with the story, but it's how I first came aware, came to be aware of the books. Um, when I was in fifth grade, it was the first year that we had of switching classes because they were trying to get us ready for middle school. And I remember my English teacher, Ms. Marcelino, showed like picked up the book, uh, Sorcerer's Stone, and showed it to us and was like, yeah, I'm reading this to my homeroom class. It's really good. And I remember being captivated by the cover art. Mm. I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. And kind of like you said, Andrew, I have a really vivid recollection of that moment. Yeah. It really sticks out in my mind. Well, um, a little bit later, leading up to my 11th birthday, I was being a very bad child. And I snooped in my parents' closet to find out what I was getting for my birthday. Um, (laughs) I never told them this. I guess I probably should. And I saw that the first three books were in a bag. And I was like, oh, sweet. I really want to read these. (laughs) So I got those for my 11th birthday, which feels like very apropos. (laughs) Um, And this was in 1999, and I was immediately hooked. Aw. Well, um, for me, it it happened much later. Uh, I remember, so our middle school, did you guys have the accelerated reader program at all? Yeah. Yeah, where you read a book, and then you answer a couple of quiz questions on the computer for points, and you need a certain amount of points per quarter or however the school year does it. The Harry Potter books, I guess because of length, were like 20-something points, and all the other books were like three or four. Uh, <laughs> so I, I thought I would like, not cheat, but like get it get it done real easily by like reading, by just picking up the latest Harry Potter book that was out as year 2000. And so it was Goblet of Fire, and hardcover, of course. And I, uh, or it was 2000, it was the fall of 2000. So hardcover Goblet of Fire was out and I picked it up and you know how like the first couple Harry Potter books, the first chapter is kind of like a really good intro. It's like, Harry was a wizard. He went to school and his friends Ron and Hermione. But the first chapter of book four is Wormtail and the villagers of Little Hangleton and Big Hangleton talking about the murder of the riddles by Frank Bryce. And so I was very, very, very confused and I hated what I read and I put the book down <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't come back to it. I genuinely did not come back to it. It was not until the following fall when the movie came out of Sorcerer's Stone that I was w- with a buddy of mine, uh, Rand and his mom, uh, it took us to like, they just, you know, bought my ticket and were like, you got to go see this movie. And that was when I like got introduced properly to Harry. So I, I think there is something to be said for, adaptation and expectations like ultimately i would not be a harry potter fan if it weren't for the movie i think because the movie really translated in a certain way again not having been a reader as a kid really translated to me what was good about you know what was what was mesmerizing and captivating about harry's magical world yeah and micah how did you get into it for me it was just a a friend from growing up at home, she actually introduced me to the series one summer and, and handed me the first couple books. Much like Eric, I had gotten into the series initially through the films. And that was kind of my introduction to the Potter series. But I think, as can often be the case with movies, you know that there's more to it when you read the books. Yeah. And so that was something that I picked up on and and as I said, a friend just handed me the the first couple of books, which I tore through very quickly. And I think at the time, 
Order of the Phoenix was the most recent book that had been released, and we were coming up on the summer of, of Half-Blood Prince in 2005, and that's kind of how I initially got involved with MuggleNet and with this podcast not long after you all decided to launch it. And I just remember being very intrigued by all the theories that were out there, and, and jumping on to MuggleNet was the first site that came up when I when I looked for theories and and. There was a great section mm. on MuggleNet that you could go to the editorial section and a lot of really great writers who had a lot of really great theories about what was to come in Half-Blood Prince and just kind of went from there. But in terms of opening it up to other book series, I wasn't a huge reader growing up. I think kind of similar to what Eric was talking about and certainly reading the Potter series has maybe even like reinvigorated the interest because I think there's a sense like when you're in school and teachers are giving you books to read, sometimes that can be a turnoff because they're like, you have to read this book and you have to do a report on it. And um, so that's kind of my story. Mm. It's funny to talk about Harry Potter, this global phenomenon, this global franchise, to be able to have a podcast that has been around for 14 years uh, and published over 425 episodes. When you consider the humble origins of the author and of Harry himself, it's a fairly common story that J.K. Rowling was on welfare when she was trying to get this book published. Uh, there's a quote that you can find online where she says, I was pretty much as poor as you could possibly be without being homeless. Um, you know, the idea that from the humble origins, this this author who had the idea come to her while on a train and who spent so many years writing in cafes with her daughter in the pram, writing on napkins, could become a global best-selling author. The first, but the, the first person to make a billion dollars just through writing alone is really just a shocking occurrence. And it's important to remember, even though there's all these popular and uh, very mean memes about J.K. Rowling going around the internet today, she really started out from a very, very like low space and earned, in my opinion, everything that she's received. And it's because of that history that she has also inspired so many people to write themselves. Yes. I know you have a couple of quotes here from uh, her Twitter account. This is one of the... Uh, best parts of her Twitter account. She has definitely inspired people through there alone. Mm -hmm. For example, in 2016, she tweeted, I wasn't going to give up until every single publisher turned me down, but I often feared that would happen. And she also tweeted numerous times and said in interviews just how hard she worked to get discovered and how many rejections she faced and the toll that those rejections took on her. But she still stood strong. And for anyone who's trying to get a book published or, or picked up by a publisher, those reading those from J.K. Rowling are incredibly inspiring. They really are. I mean, the, the biggest one that hit me is from NY Mag. This article talks about how she got her, her first rejection. Um, they didn't send the, was it the envelope? It was a slip of paper. Instead of critiquing the manuscript, they kind of complained that she sent the whole thing in an envelope and they didn't return the folder back to her that she had sent them the book in, but it was a big deal because she then had to go and buy another folder to, to keep sending the book out in. And so she's literally talking about, I had to buy another folder and that was what had me down even more so than the rejection of the book. I'm just like, this woman was poor. Like this woman was yeah. absolutely, 
dregs, really. Mm-hmm. I bet those publishers must just still be kicking themselves <laughs> to this day. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Can you imagine being the person who got the first Harry Potter book and was like, nah, this is crap. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because in preparation for day- today's discussion, it seems like Bloomsbury and Scholastic, the editors there, were incredibly in- excited about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone. So I wonder what they saw in it that these other publishers did not. It's such a striking difference. It really is. And, I, you know, there's definitely some resources across the internet, um, different interviews with her where she kind of speculates about that. Or you might be able to find an interview with Arthur Levine as well uh, when he talks about it. I know we have a quote from David Heyman coming up. But just on this uh, on this through line of Rowling herself being, you know, getting rejected in her Harvard commencement speech, which she gave to the graduates in 2008. Uh, and it also was published. The whole speech was published as a book that you can find some, some different places if you look. But there's a quote from her in that where she says, by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. And if you need a, you know, an inspirational quote about perseverance or, anything like that, look no further than Rowling saying she was the biggest failure she knew. Because gosh darn it, if that doesn't immediately cure your depression and acne and get you out in writing. And by the way, that Harvard commencement speech was so iconic that it was published as a book called Very Good Lives. Very Good Lives. That's the title of it. I couldn't couldn't remember the title. Yeah. It's also worth noting, I think, too, when you were talking about the tweets that she puts out there to inspire other writers... It, it's really something that you could take for any profession. When you look at her attitude towards not giving up, I think it's applicable to anything that you want to try and achieve in your life. And mm-hmm. her saying that basically, this is also paraphrasing a quote from that speech, which I definitely encourage listeners to go and, and listen to or watch if you haven't. But uh, failure essentially became the foundation on which she built the rest of her life. I think I'm paraphrasing, like I said, but uh, it's, it's really an inspirational speech. And, and one other thing to touch on with JK Rowling is that she had to essentially change her name for the purposes of publishing this series. When she was publishing Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, the publishers didn't want her to go out there with essentially a a woman's name. Yep. They didn't think that it would sell well enough. Yeah. So she had to add the K to her name, which she she really didn't have a middle name. And so she took on the name of her mother, Kathleen, and became J.K. Rowling, shortening the Joanne part of it. And it, it's interesting to sit back and, and look at that in today's day and age, given everything that's going on, to know that essentially, if she wanted this book to sell, that she had to not come across as being a woman, almost maybe even gender gender neutral in a way. Yeah. Um, it, it It's surprising to me that, but I guess it shouldn't be. And then for the rest of your life, you are known as J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because of that moment, you're stuck. Yeah. But we all know she's a woman now. Like it's, 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 it's come out. The secrets, (laughs) secrets out of the woodwork. 
But I mean, you're 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 yeah. absolutely right. Can you imagine a time when uh, a book by a by a woman author just because it was a woman wouldn't sell? Or can you imagine a, a time when fantasy was a fantasy literature was a hard sell? Like right. that was the reality well, then. I, that was just twenty years ago. And think of some of the biggest books since Harry Potter: The Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins, Divergent, Veronica Roth, Twilight, Stephanie Meyer. All women. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, there were a few of us who not only read those books, but started podcasts about them too, right? Yes. <laughs> Imprint, the Twilight <laughs> Imprint podcast. Imprint, the Twilight Hunger podcast. Chat we did on Hypable. I was thinking about that. <laughs> I mean, really, like, Harry Potter is a gateway book that got us into these other series. I remember being interested whenever publishers would spring something as the next Harry Potter you know, the next, like they did with Hunger yeah, Games. Yeah, they like, still try to do that. And it's kind of funny, like there still hasn't been the next Harry Potter. Twilight, Hunger Games got really close, divergent to some extent in terms of popularity and fan fever, but but nothing's been up there. And you have to, so obviously Harry Potter has changed the publishing industry in a lot of ways, but you have to wonder now, publishers must send these manuscripts, I would hope, through a team of people. And they must ask themselves, are we sure we aren't passing on what could potentially be the next Harry Potter? Are we sure? Because these <laughs> publishers can't make that same mistake again. <laughs> right? I mean, they, they have to have some new systems in place. I agree. I agree. I would. I think it comes down to, though, being in the right place at the right time. And we're going to hear from David Heyman. But I, I think a little bit of it is, in fact, just dumb luck. Uh, it, it, you could read something and think that it's the best thing in the world and it turns out to be absolute garbage in the long run, but then you could read something that maybe you're not totally sure of, but it turns into this worldwide phenomenon. And yeah, it's, it's just a matter of probably just trusting in yourself a little bit, believing in what it is that's in front of you. And I think that's what you'll hear from, from David Heyman, that he just fell in love with this story and believed in it enough that once he sent it over to Warner Brothers, that was it. Yeah, I think you're right about the luck. I also imagine you have to be in the right mood while you're reading one of these, maybe the right setting. If you're in the New York City subway, where all the New York City publishers are based, or where all the uh, where a lot of book publishers are based in New York City. Or, you know, are you reading this in the subway where it's crowded, smelly, and hot? Or are you reading this on the beach where it's really comfortable and you're in a better mood? Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is some dumb luck involved as well. But I don't want to call Arthur Levine dumb. He seems like a very smart man. Yeah. But, I mean, 13 rejections, apparently, is what I read in one of these articles. 13 different publishers. You can totally, if you actually think about having to mail, and, and I'm sure it wasn't simultaneously. I'm sure it was chronological because J.K. Rowling was so poor she wouldn't have bought 13 folders. Um, you know, if you can just imagine the mental toll that that probably took on her and, and there's quotes about, you know, people say she, she should do what she's good at and it's not writing, you know, it's just like, this is the woman who, again, who passed that threshold for being an author made more money than anybody else did ever writing. And it just, uh, the comments, the criticism she would get back just, really just would have would have dulled an ordinary person down i think pretty much to to some really dark places so so uh did pierce morgan happen to work for one of these publishing houses <laughs> back in the day 
he seems he seems like somebody who's particularly happy to still try and nitpick at the Potter series even today. <laughs> He's always trying to stir I, the pot. I know, but it, I'm like, maybe you're feeling, you know, a little, envious. little em- emasculated and envious yeah. about this person who's seen so much success. So let's play one of these David Heyman clips. This is from episode 200 of MuggleCast. Micah and Eric interviewed David Heyman. And in this clip, he talks about how he found Harry Potter and submitted it to Warner Brothers for the movie rights. I uh, was a very fortunate person to... I was in, in the right place at the right time. I read an unpublished manuscript and... Um, in, in, in 1997, the beginning of 1997, and fell in love with it. And there began my journey, I suppose. Um, I had no idea that it would become the phenomenon that it's become. Um, it was just something that I read and loved. You know, it made me laugh. It moved me. I'd been to a school a bit like Hogwarts, but without the magic. Um, <laughs> I had friends who, you know, who were important to me. I had friends who I fell out with. There were teachers who I liked and teachers who I didn't like. And it felt just, in, you know, entirely relatable. And yet at the same time, there was this sort of wish fulfillment aspect to, to it. I, I loved it. It reminded me of those books that I read as a child and yet completely fresh and new voice and uh, I fell in love, and so I sent it to Warner Brothers, with whom I had a relationship. They they were paying for my office in exchange for a first foot deal, and uh, I sent it to them, and and they didn't have a clue what what <laughs> what what they were about to get their hands on. But uh, <laughs> I sent it to someone they called Lionel Wigram. Lionel was someone who I'd been to, you know, who I'd grown up with. I'd known him since I was around 13 years old. The first girl I ever really made out with was at a party thrown by Lionel. That's probably more detail than you need. But anyway, that was, that was a long time ago. Um, and I sent it to Lionel, and uh, he read it, and he liked it. And, uh, you know, there began the process. And I, I think that Warner's just, I mean, they really didn't have a clue. I'm not sure they even read it uh, besides Lionel at the beginning. But they they had this deal with me, and this was the first substantial thing that I'd submitted. And I think they were... You know, they wanted to show faith, and uh, you know, it's worked brilliantly for 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 everyone, everyone concerned. I would but say clearly, I was in the right place at the right time because if I'd I'd just moved back to London, if I'd moved back six months later, somebody else might have gotten it. So actually, there were people who who, who did read it and and passed on it. It wasn't like it was you know, everybody was convinced that this was going to be a you know this was a film, but certainly before it had been published. Uh, so yeah, there there's some interesting. Thoughts from David Heyman. What I find so fascinating about that is he mentioned that it was an unpublished manuscript. Right. He had discovered it in 97. Yeah. So, like, how did that happen? <sighs> I, I want to know. It has to do with the process, I'm sure, of, like, movie rights. And, and these days, any book, probably, when you, you know, when you when you buy a book from an author, there's probably some kind of option for movie rights somewhere in there. Um, already pre-figured out as a result of everything that's happened since Harry Potter. But yeah, I'm curious about that too, how exactly he came across it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right about these days. I mean, Hollywood is so desperate for hits that they need to secure movie rights in advance just in case something blows up. Yeah. So I think we take from that uh, quote that there, there really are 
or there were some channels where the book was gaining traction, even though the world itself did not know, you know, yet. Like a lot of people passed on it, he said. But the idea that he himself came across an unpublished manuscript means it it must have been somewhere. Yeah. And to Micah's luck point, every indus- every person in the industry could love a story like Harry Potter, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to catch on. I mean, th- this was a perfect storm, as I think was said earlier. It, it wasn't just some people in the industries who found it interesting and compelling. It, it, it was the fact that it caught on like wildfire and getting back to the very beginning of this discussion, the internet definitely was helpful because people were creating fan sites for the first time and people were slowly getting online in the late 90s and the early 2000s, back when we were all stuck on dial-up. <laughs> I mean, for me... I loved one reason I loved Harry Potter was it gave me a way to nerd out online. I made my own Harry Potter website, harrypottershouse.com. <laughs> Domain name now owned by Warner Brothers, by the way. That's how valuable oh, that name is. What? Yeah, I shouldn't have. Did they yeah, pay they, you for it? No, of course not. I let it expire stupidly. I wish I still owned it. <laughs> oh, that was a dumb move. <laughs> Andrew, 12-year-old Andrew, you idiot. <laughs> you could be rolling in it right now. <laughs> because I own Harry Potter's house. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I made my own website on uh, using Microsoft front page. That was a what you see is what you get website creator. And then uh, I owned... Um, yeah, it... If you go to harrypottershouse.com right now, it goes to warnerbrothers.com, the Harry Potter complete eight film collection. Huh. Great. Um, but yeah, I got I, I wanted to create a website and I was like, well, what am I going to create it about? And I was like, oh, duh, Harry Potter. And then I went to MuggleNet because that was the biggest, coolest Harry Potter site at the time. I had one too. Oh, really? You did? I did. I made... One, and I don't remember if it was GeoCities or Zanga. <laughs> it was one of those, but I remember feeling really cool because I had my own sorting quiz. It was totally manual, so people had to like email in their answers. Oh my God. Then I would email them back, letting them know what house they were sorted into. And then I would give them the password for their common room. So I had a page for each common room, and it was password protected. Oh my God. <laughs> There was nothing good in the common room, so I don't know why I did that, but... That's hilarious. <laughs> it's just, you know, this quote from David Heyman, too, going back and saying he had moved to London, and if he hadn't done that, if they'd have been, you know, time delay of four or six months, and somebody else would have optioned the films, there's this uh, there's this idea that we wouldn't have Harry Potter as we knew it today. Because I think Heyman, as a producer of all the Harry Potter Wizarding World films, and his relationship with Warner Brothers, them sort of taking a chance on him uh, to deliver something that would be valuable. We'd have totally different films if anybody took less care of the source material, I think. Um, mm-hmm. It really benefited the series that whoever read it had that personal connection that really made them want to make it the way that they made it. Yeah. And I think that's really important when we talk about the massive success of Harry Potter to remember. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I think if you look at some of the other films that he's been a part of since Potter, I'm not as familiar with his work prior to, but he's done Paddington. He's done Winnie the Pooh. So it's still very much, I know we've, are shying away from calling it a children's series. But initially, when you're thinking about Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, bringing on a director like Chris Columbus, it all just kind of makes sense. And and I feel like this is his niche and this is what he's very good at, Heyman. 
And I agree that if we didn't have somebody like that to bring the Potter series to life, it would be very much different than what yeah. we know it as today. By the way, I'm looking at the domain registration information for harrypottershouse.com. <laughs> Warner Brothers ownership expires this November. So this might be my chance to swoop in and take it back, baby. <laughs> I'm going to relaunch the whole site. <laughs> and ruin your working relationship with Warner Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll probably renew it. I'll never get it back. Sad. Oh, man. Anyway, Laura, <laughs> we have some other... You you came up with some other questions for today's discussion. Yeah. And I feel like we've already touched on a number of points from the first couple of questions about how we got into the series and then how quickly our obsession set in. So I want to launch into what I think is going to be a controversial question for this panel. In retrospect, do we think it was necessary to rename Philosopher's Stone to Sorcerer's Stone for American audiences? I do. Can I'm really happy with this change. I don't. <laughs> Can you explain, Eric? Yeah. I think of a philosopher as being somebody who ponders life's big questions. Um, still, to this day, that's how I think of a philosopher. And when I took philosophy in college, that was what it was about. It was the mind-body problem. It was um, artificial intelligence. Is it possible? Is it not? Is Is death inherently bad or good for the people who experience it? You know, all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, there's an entirely separate definition for philosopher, which means alchemist. And that's what Nicholas Flamel is. He was an alchemist. But the book wasn't called The Alchemist's Stone. It was called The Philosopher's Stone because The Philosopher's Stone is a real historic artifact from hundreds of years ago that's been known in popular culture. So again, the connection isn't made for me between Philosopher's Stone and uh you know somebody who's who's basically a sorcerer so i 100% support the changing of sorcerer's stone i don't always well i guess i am kind of a person who always likes his handheld i complain that the the book stopped translating like faucet to tap or tap to faucet when you get to book 5 i hate that so i am very much like i'm not objecting to having my handheld on this front and i i, I like the title as sorcerer's stone Eric, it's so funny that you say all of this because literally all the points that you brought up are the reasons why I think they should have left it alone. Yeah, exactly. Because um, my thing is like Nicholas Flamel was a real person, a real historic figure, and the folklore of the Philosopher's Stone is a real piece of folklore. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the books draw so heavily on these themes, it really bugs me that we are like sort of completely providing this misnomer for what the Philosopher's Stone was believed to be, just based on its connection to the real life character. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, maybe if in the book, Harry and friends learned that Nicholas Flamel was a philosopher, what that meant in terms of the context of, no, he didn't ponder the mind-body problem. He legitimately was trying to turn metal into gold. If they went into... But they do. Yeah. There is that part where they're reading about Nicholas Flamel and it talks about him as being a noted alchemist. Yeah, but what is that? You know, to an 11-year-old. To an 11-year-old, mm -hmm. what the hell's an alchemist? And what relevance does it really have to the plot of the book? 
you know, J.K. Rowling did something she never really did in the later Harry Potter books by basing the book around real artifact uh, or a real legend, you know, of, of history. And I think that if you're trying to sell this book to children and, and audiences, I don't hate the idea that you would change a thing or two to make it a little bit more understandable. Um, because Nicholas Fumel, if you use five things to describe him, like, yeah, a wizard, a person who uses magic is probably pretty up there. Well, hmm. he was believed to be an alchemist after he died. Yeah. Like the real life figure. But I don't know. I guess my feeling is that if the thought here is that a child couldn't understand what philosopher meant in this context, then why wasn't it rebranded everywhere? To me, it feels like very pointed <laughs> as like, oh, American audiences won't get <laughs> well, this. So I, they're, they're stupid. <laughs> you know? Let, let me throw this mm -hmm. quote from Arthur Levine into the conversation. So he was the editor at Scholastic at the time, and he was there for a while. He actually left uh, within the past year. Um, he said, he, so he said this in JK Rowling, a bibliography. This is an amazing resource. It has information on every single edition of the Harry Potter books. Um, this is endorsed by JK Rowling. And in fact, she has a little quote at the beginning of this bibliography, congratulating the author on a job well done. Um, so uh, the author, Philip Arrington, uh, spoke to Arthur Levine for this book, he said, every change was something that I discussed with Joe. In fact, Joe came up with the alternative title of Sorcerer's Stone. It's one of the most common conversations that you have in a publishing company with a writer. The conversation goes something like this. I presented this to the sales and marketing department, and they feel that the title doesn't do this. So let's consider alternatives. Of course, if the author says, no, absolutely not, that's my title then that's the title that goes on the book. It's a simple matter. But authors are professional people, and sometimes just changing the title gives the sales and marketing department a, deg a degree of confidence that helps your book. Levine noted that he needed a title that said magic more overtly to American readers. He continued, I certainly did not mind Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, but I can see if you forget now what happened after, why a book that is titled Philosopher's Stone might seem more arcane or something. So the title that I had suggested to me which I then turned to Joe, was Harry Potter in the School of Magic. Joe very thoughtfully said, no, that doesn't feel right to me. There are objects that I would like. What if we called it the Sorcerer's Stone? And that completely does it. So, Well, I have to say, Sorcerer's Stone is a far better title than Harry Potter in the School of Magic. So I'll You know what's that. funny? The French book is called that. Yes, <laughs> like that's actually the next line in this interview. <laughs> yeah, um... Well, look, I think from a marketing perspective, Harry Potter and the School of Magic, yeah, it sounds basic, but it also is intriguing to, to children. A School of Magic? How fun! Of course. Yeah, that that's kind of where my head went with this. When you're thinking about kids, there's more of a correlation between sorcerers and magic than anything having to do with philosophers. So I understand why they made the change, but I don't necessarily think that it's something that they needed to do. If if truthfully, J.K. Rowling wanted to call this book Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, that's what it should have been called, or standardize it across the board. I do, like I Laura do. was saying. Yeah, but that's not what would they do. That's with the, not a. What about the movie? Was the movie called Philosopher's Stone in in the UK? Yeah. Yes, it was, and they yeah, and they like filmed separate sequences. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> the Philosopher's Stone. 
the sorcerer's stone. Cut, rap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like going off that Levine quote too, like ultimately we don't live in a world where the book speaks on merit alone. We live in a world where people pass the book on a shelf and look at it. And so the cover art has a lot to do with that too, Laura. You're sure. talking about movie about book one's cover catching your eye. And so ultimately I think it, it must be the right decision um, because it's possible it wouldn't have taken gained as much traction without. Yeah, that's, it's certainly possible, but I, I just think that when we're looking at this, do we think that this then informed JK Rowling's decision moving forward on other titles to not potentially cause conflict between her different audiences. Because if you look, really, there's nothing that maybe with the exception of Deathly Hallows, which nobody had any clue what those were. Yeah, she made up a word, basically. How would you guys feel if Scholastic, let's say for the 30th anniversary, was like, you know what? We're changing it back to Philosopher's <laughs> yeah. Stone. And they published a new version Mary Grand Prix art, you know, just like the original, but it said Philosopher's Stone. Would that be cool or would that be like a crappy way to drum up some sales? I would buy that. I would too. I don't, at this point, Sorcerer's Stone is so established that I wouldn't necessarily be in favor of them completely changing all the branding, but I think it would be cool if they came out with a special edition that was yeah. called Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, that'd be cool. I can't believe you guys are giving Scholastic another idea to sell books and take my of, money and instead of jk rowling on the cover it would say joanne kathleen rowling heck and yeah. then there would be like an arrow pointing to the name and it would say at the end of the arrow this is a woman wow <laughs> <laughs> all right so moving on <laughs> i wanted to touch on what moments from sorcerers slash philosopher's stone really stuck out and resonated with us i know for me the quarrel twist at the end of the book is one of the first book twists i remember really catching me like i remember reading the book and i wasn't convinced that snape was the bad guy because that felt too on the nose but I didn't know who it could possibly be. And then at the end of that chapter where it's like, it wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. And you turn the page and it says it was Quirrell. I was like, what? That was. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big surprise. Mm -hmm. And that's the chapter we're going to be reading, which is great. <laughs> I mean, it's a perfect <laughs> intro really to that, that chapter. And, and the big, the big surprise that you've been duped all year Again, J.K. Rowling's writing, and on that point, my favorite moments, the ones that stick with me, are still the Quidditch match, even just the invention of the game Quidditch and how she explains it in a way that you can understand it and just imagine it being played on Broomstick. Mm -hmm. I know she's complained about not having the greatest pleasure writing some of those Quidditch matches, but reading them was always, for me, a heck of a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. when you get to the Mirror of Erised and watch Harry... This boy who never knew his family slowly becoming obsessed with viewing his, not just his mom and dad like her in the movie, but his entire extended family, grandpas, you know, grandmas, cousins, uncles, aunts, all of that. Um, you really realize that these books are about something else. They're about loss. They're about grieving. Yeah. And I think even as, even when you're young, you realize that there's more 
to the mirror of Erised and Harry as a character than just being your standard cardboard cutout action hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we get that wonderful scene where Dumbledore tells Harry that what he sees is socks. Socks. And Harry even has the distinct impression that Dumbledore is kind of lying to him. And now, now that we know what we know, Imagine it's, it's, he sees Grindelwald wearing only socks. Yeah. <laughs> or and that's just not child appropriate, not safe for children. So just well, stuck with the socks. I mean, maybe he just mix. <laughs> maybe he just misspoke, and there was supposed to be a C there instead of an S. <laughs> Micah. Oh my. My um. What really stuck out to me was um, <laughs> try to follow that, Andrew. I will never recover from that. I will never unsee that, Micah. Thank you. Um, the, the What really resonated with me was just the way that the Dursleys treated Harry. It it will never not make me feel uncomfortable. And of course, not just in this book, but in other books too. And I think one reason it, it originally struck me and has always struck me is it's sick to treat your own family like that. And when you're a kid, at least for me, I didn't really have any problems within my family. I didn't see those problems, at least, because I was so young and my parents kept them from me. So to see that happening in a family, I was like, what? This is crazy. Um, So I really appreciated J.K. Rowling putting those types of dynamics in here. And it it just made me uncomfortable as a child. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think what, what is so interesting about the way the dynamic was portrayed is it's very much portrayed from the view of a child who doesn't know any different. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a straight up child abuse situation, but nobody ever outright says that they don't have to, of course, but when you're a kid, you're thinking, Oh God, what is this? What's happening? And now as an adult, I'm like, Oh my God, somebody called defects, please. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I really enjoy the Halloween chapter. Just, the festive nature of it it's it's kind of its own introduction into the wizarding world and of course that night is really the the formative moment of the trio Mm. of harry ron and hermione kind of coming together after the the troll in the dungeon so that's really what kind of stuck out to me yeah and that leads perfectly into my next question was which which chapter was our favorite mine is halloween um for a lot of the reasons that micah just stated also halloween is just my favorite holiday in general um so seeing entire chapters of this series dedicated to halloween and like ghosts and ghouls like i love the death day party in book two that's probably one of my favorite chapters in chamber of secrets um it was nice to see so much service given to my favorite holiday yeah Mine was the Mirror of Erised. A lot happens in that chapter. You get the introduction of the invisibility cloak because Harry gets it for Christmas. Then Harry goes sneaking around Hogwarts with it and he discovers the Mirror of Erised. And of of course, Dumbledore understands why Harry was drawn to it. And of course, we get some humor from Dumbledore there because he makes that socks joke with an S. I also had forgotten that the room is actually marked. The door says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. It says it backwards, of course. Um, But it's kind of interesting to me that they were announcing this. And just another example 
of how Hogwarts is a security nightmare. Come on in, kids. See your your deepest desires and get emotionally messed up over that. I, I feel like it should not be marked on the door. What's on the mirror? It is the inscription on the- And the door. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It it definitely is one of those things where when you when you see it, you feel real smart for having figured it out because she does go into weird detail about what the inscription reads. But mm-hmm. I love it. I think it's clever that she just did backwards lettering. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds it sounds almost Latin if you're not right. Yeah, because like, the spacing, because where she did mm-hmm. it. Right. I'll let. Uh, Eric do more of the explanation because I'm sure we probably have a lot of the same reasoning, but my favorite chapter is Diagon Alley just because it's our formal introduction to the wizarding world. Yeah. I don't, I don't have much else. There's people there like Ollivander who know Harry more than he knows himself. And that's the first time you really get that, you know, Hagrid's been there and Hagrid was there when he was a baby and all that. But somebody like Ollivander interacting with Harry, talking about his parents, talking about his past, it just seems like really the first glimpse at what the organizational adult wizarding world looks like. And for that reason, I love it. And what about when we all realize that Diagon Alley is laid out diagonally? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was always fun. Yeah. Still is. Sometimes I like saying it that way. Diagonally. (laughs) So... That was a fun discussion on Sorcerer's Stone. Next week, we're going to dive into the secrets of book one, right, Eric? I think so. So there's really just tons of examples, and I I really do want to get even deeper into Nicholas Flamel, but these things that are casually name-dropped, and Micah, you mentioned last week Sirius Black's name appearing in the first chapter of book one, Yeah, years before he's book two. So I thought it would be awesome to do a reverse connecting the thread, sort of, and overlook all the stuff that book one sets up for the rest of the series. You know, we're t- it's it's kind of cool. We're talking about how poor J.K. Rowling was and how she was struggled to get the first book published. But when she did, there's still all these clues and references that set up the later books. So even though she probably couldn't have imagined even selling a second book after the first one, she really did her planning. And that much is evident in these chapters yeah i'm glad you had this idea because when i was reading the first chapter alone a sorcerer's stone it's amazing how many how much groundwork she lays that applies to the later books so i'm really excited to 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 uh have this discussion next week yeah definitely time now for some quizage yeah last week's question was which harry potter books do not have a chapter with the same name as their title so there's a word for this. It's eponymous, ep- eponymous, eponymous, uh, which books don't have eponymous chapters. And the correct answer was Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> it does annoy me that I have to like slash that, but okay. I know. Uh, it, it's books one and three. So, and uh, <laughs> Prisoner of Azkaban. There's not a chapter called The Prisoner of Azkaban the way that there is for The Chamber of Secrets, The Goblet of Fire, etc., etc. So, Books one and three were the correct answers. Uh, they were submitted to us over on Twitter by at Patronus Seeker, at Dumby the Bumblebee, Anders Drew, Issy Marcantonio, Kimberly, Incessant Bookworm, Casper Plays Quizich, 
<laughs> Ryan Nolan, the Jessly Hallows, My Life as a Muggle, Robbie Stillman, Cat, Michelle, Sarah Weensy, Tori, the uh, Madison Whitehead, Marlena, Kyle Ely, Sarah Davis, Karen Frode, and Retta Gambo. This week's Quizits question is a book one throwback. Definitely fitting for our book one dive. But uh, what time does the Hogwarts Express depart from platform nine and three quarters as indicated on harry's ticket okay so we got a lot of uh correct answers that time yeah thank you to everybody who participates and thanks to everybody who has been sending in feedback we get a lot of it we read slash listen to all of it we can't air all of it but we really appreciate it because it's really nice to hear from everybody you can go to mugglecast.com and use the contact us form there if you would like to uh reach out to us or you can call us one nine two zero three muggle that's one nine two oh three six eight four four five three y'all there are nine days left to sign up to receive the tote bag and signed album art there is never and i know this sounds like a, a, a marketing line but it's true there's never been a better time to become a patron of mugglecast at patreon.com slash mugglecast get that new tote bag get that signed album art and support the show your support helps keep the show running and and helping us uh, pay for things that we need to take care of around the podcast. Patreon.com slash MuggleCast. And in addition to those two physical benefits, you will receive tons of digital benefits as well. It's all laid out at Patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Thank you so much for supporting us. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Twitter.com slash MuggleCast, Facebook.com slash MuggleCast, and Instagram.com slash MuggleCast. We have that new TBT feature going on on our social media channels. And I know our Instagram is our newest social media channel. So if you haven't done it yet, please follow us there. We know everybody's using Instagram. That's where all the cool people are at. So that's why we joined it. So join us there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.